0: Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We're going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question and answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, the Catechism addresses the issue of the Lord's Supper and the language that is used, and there is rather strong language in terms of the words of institution. And where Christ says, this is my body, this is my blood, is pretty strong. And so when we hear this, we, we might wonder, well, why, why would Christ use such strong language? It's tempting, you know, in our day and age where we want to make things more palatable or make things more uh, or less offensive, if you will, so it's something that's more, uh, I don't know, just sort of brings more people in, if you will, than it's not uh, something that really offends. And when we think about the language of the Lord's Supper and the persecution that the Christians faced in first century or in the first century, they were accused of being cannibals, and they faced uh, persecution as a result of this. We have Christ here in John 6, who uses very strong language uh, regarding uh, who He is. And so when we ask that question of, why would we use such language in the Lord's Supper? This is my body, this is my blood. Um, eat of Christ, drink of Christ's blood. It almost seems as if this this is unnecessary, something we don't need to do. And so why do we use this language? And so we'll simply divide our message into two points looking at the Catechism. Are the elements changed? And secondly then, as we summarize this, why does Christ use such language? Literally addressing that question. So let's begin with, are the elements changed? Well, the Lord's Supper, in terms of how the Catechism lays this out in question and answer 78, wants us to understand that as baptism does not literally wash away sins, that it doesn't really take them away, so the Lord's Supper does not literally become the body and blood of Christ. And so remember last time we talked about sacramental metonymy, where we use one thing in the place of Another. Uh, so we use some examples for instance Paul speaks of the rock was Christ doesn't mean that the rock literally became Christ uh, we talked about the White House will make a statement so the White House isn't literally going to speak but you're using the White House in the place of a president we said that's a tasty dish you're not literally eating the dish uh, but it's just summarizing that it's actually a tasty meal Uh, You can Google other instances of metonymy, if you so desire. Uh, Thankfully, most search engines will do spell check. Uh, Don't ask me how I know, uh, but they will. And so you can find other instances of this if you need more examples. And so the the point that the Catechism is making is that Christ is using sacramental language. Uh, So we, we don't want to water down the language, pardon the pun, I just realized that. We we don't want to make this language more palatable, if you will. We want to keep it as sacramental language. We we want to understand why we are doing this and what it's tied to. Uh, So as Christ continues to speak and as we think about the catechism, the catechism wants us to understand these sacraments as signs and seals. So remember, when we have mentioned seals, this isn't anything that's necessarily new. Um, The seal is where you have the wax that's placed on the envelope and then the king would take his signet ring and press it into the, the hot wax so when it cools, the person that's the intended recipient knows that the message has never been tampered with. So the sacraments are the Lord presenting for us the visible outworking of the gospel. So baptism is presenting the waters of ordeal, passing through the waters of death, emerging triumphant, The Lord's Supper is reminding us that as we partake of Christ, we truly have life in Christ. And so now getting at this language that Christ uh, uses and and as the catechism summarizes this and drives home this language of Christ literally saying, this is my body, this is my blood. The catechism wants us to understand this isn't literally changed. And so we might say, well, maybe as Reformed people, we're just using strong language just to use strong language. That, you know, this isn't really necessary. But when you look at what Christ says, Christ never waters down the language. In fact, as attention continues to, to build, Christ continues to use strong language. So notice in verse 52, where the Jews ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat. It's a very strong question, right? I mean, Christ has said this reality. Uh, He said that if anyone will eat of this bread or if anyone will eat of my flesh, verse 51, they will live forever. Uh, So Christ is making this strong connection between the bread, between Christ, and, and inviting individuals to eat of his flesh. I mean, this is cannibalism, right? I mean, that's how it sounds to the Jews. This is something horribly offensive. We, we don't eat human beings. I think today that's probably still one sin that society would agree upon is offensive and heinous, and I don't want to know if that's not true. I'll just proceed thinking that's true. Uh, but going on, in terms of this, Christ uses a strong language in verse 53. Unless one eats, of the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks His blood, and so you you hear this and you think, boy, Christ, you're not helping your case. I mean, here visibly people are upset that that you're saying these things, and all you do is continue to make stronger statements in terms of literally consuming Christ. And so, hopefully, we can have some sympathy for the force of Rome. If a Roman Catholic comes to you and says, well, the The elements literally become the body and blood of Christ. Uh, I mean, we can understand that. Here in John 6, we we hear this strong language. I'm not saying you're right, but hopefully we at least see the force of their argument. And as we look at this, say, okay, well then, this is where you take a Roman Catholic individual and you say, well, well, why is Christ using this language? Is he telling us it needs to be re-sacrificed again and again? Because that's where Rome takes it. And clearly that's, that's not what we want to say because that would contradict what we heard this morning with Christ in Hebrews, that there's a one-time shedding of blood, and that one-time shedding of blood is actually superior to multiple sheddings of blood from multiple animals. And so when, when Christ says this, we think, okay, well, maybe Christ is just trying to troll the Jews around him. I, I mean, does Christ really have good reason for this? In fact, as it goes on, Christ tells us, and we start understanding more of Christ's intention, that he wants us to understand that if we don't eat of the body and blood of Christ, we have no life within us. I mean, really, pause and reflect on that language. Because it's, it's telling us that, that if we don't consume Christ, we have nothing. And so this, this is very strong Language. And if we take it at face value, we, we could do a lot of things with it if we rip this stuff out of context. And that's hopefully what, what we're reminded of this evening, that we need to take the words of Scripture, put them into bigger context, and see the intention behind Christ. But the strong language is Christ wanting us to understand who Christ is. Rome can look at this text, and this is why I want to go through this text again, that if you ever interact with the Roman Catholic... They can take you right here. You end up scratching your head and you go, I I don't know how to answer that. It seems right here in black and white. This is right, right? I mean, Christ is saying, this bread is my body, this blood is, or this wine is my blood. you got to literally eat these things. And as you literally eat these things, you literally consume me. But if we look at this in the context, we find that as Christ does this, he wants the individuals to understand a bigger issue. Because as he interacts with the individuals, you have the Jewish people who begin to grumble amongst themselves, as we find in verse 41. You know, so the Jews grumbled about him. We think, oh, well, that's a problem with them. But we find also in the context of this in verse 61, we have the disciples grumbling amongst themselves, saying to Christ, this is rather harsh. And so this is a rather harsh statement. I mean, we, we, we can't get around that. I mean, Christ is being rather pointed, very clear, that apart from Christ, you do not have life. Apart from being drawn to Christ by the Father, you have no life. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, you have no life. And so our temptation may be to be with the disciples and say, Whoa, these are strong words. I don't know if we want to be this strong. And so the disciples themselves rebuke Christ. And, and Christ then turns and, like, really, you're offended by this? Do you understand who I am, right? I mean, this is what it comes back to. Do we understand who Christ is? And so Christ is telling us that, that we shouldn't just be dismissive of what he's teaching us. Christ wants us to understand that as Christians, we're being persecuted for being cannibals. To answer that, there was a certain agenda driving that. It certainly made Christians seem like bad people who were upsetting the empire, and it makes it a lot easier to persecute bad people. Christ is not advocating cannibalism. That's not the intention of what Christ is doing here. And so we, we can understand, in terms of the force of Rome's theology, we can understand how Rome would appeal to this, And again, I call that to your attention because a Roman Catholic takes you to this text. You might just look at it and go, I don't know what to do with that. Christ literally says, this is my body, this is my blood, you literally have to consume me. And so it seems that the only answer to that is that these elements have to become Christ. But is that really what Christ is saying? Is that really what Christ intends? Is the Catechism inviting us to just be dismissive of Christ. Well, clearly, we don't want to say the bread and wine are changed. Because Christ here, even with these Jews being saved, as Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, as we talked about last time, Christ holds the bread, holds the wine. There's no blood gushing out of him. He's not cutting off a section of his flesh. So there has to be something more going on here. This is a place where You take a Roman Catholic and you say, listen, here are the words of institution. Uh, We have witnesses of this event with the apostles. We don't see Christ cutting himself up. We don't see Christ merging with the bread. We don't see the wine coming from Christ's body. So clearly, there's something more. So why does Christ use such strong language? And question answer 79 addresses this. Well, when, when we have this strong language and Christ literally invites us to eat of his body and drink of his blood, the Catechism, what I appreciate, is that it doesn't overreact to Rome. Because what, what's the temptation we can have? Well, we don't want to use strong language like that because people may think we're Roman Catholic, and if they think we're Roman Catholic, well, then, then we're not really you know, setting the, the tone and showing why we're distinctive. The Catechism just tells us, listen, listen, there's good reason for this language. In other words, we don't want to overreact to Rome and just say, well, they use that language, therefore it's wrong. The Catechism's affirming the reality. John 6 uses strong language. The words of institution use strong language. And so we have to account for that language rather than just being dismissive of it or explaining it away. Uh, one of the things as Reformed people, we have to submit to the Word of God, right? We, we have to take the Word of God say, this is what Christ teaches us. Uh, we don't understand this exhaustively, but our responsibility is to understand what Christ is teaching us and to want to learn it and to submit to it. And so this is where the Catechism says, listen, Christ has good reason for this. We talked about Article 35 of the Belgian Confession last time of a reminder that as we have these physical elements feeding our mouth, so it is the Spirit that feeds the mouth of our soul. And so as the Catechism is laying this out, notice the language that's used here. It assures us a visible sign and pledge through the Spirit's work. And so again, if a Roman Catholic comes to you and says, well, you're just this Zwinglian memorialist that explains away the sacrament." We say, well, that's not true. We believe Christ feeds us in the power of his Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we don't know exactly how. We, we don't actually understand the mechanics of it. We, we affirm there's, there's a mysterious element to this. But nevertheless, Christ feeds us. So we're, we're not just mere memorialists. That's what the catechism is driving home. And it's through the Holy Spirit's work we share in his true body and blood. And so that the implication there is that the catechism wants us to understand we are united to the sacrificial Christ. That's what the sacrament's holding out for us. We are united to that one-time sacrifice identified with it and those who deserve to be upon the cross. And so as the catechism is telling us, as we consume the Lord's Supper, we are assured that Christ is the one who continues to nourish us in the power of his spirit. So it is continually nourishing us, we're continually feeding on Christ, and we're being fed by his one-time sacrifice. So this brings us then to, to the point, why is Christ using such strong language? The audience is upset. His own disciples are upset. You would think that, that Christ would, would just back down, would just wouldn't want to be so forceful. That's not what Christ does at all. And so why is he doing this? Well, hopefully, as, as you notice and kind of look at this text, and I'm sort of hitting on superficial points. Uh, so if a Roman Catholic comes to you and only calls your attention the eating of the body, eating of the or drinking of the blood, you can say, wait a minute, let's back up. Let's put these words in context. What does Christ intend by these words? And so we can take them and just say, oh, well, this is what he literally says. That's what it must literally mean. But then we go back to the words of institution like we said last time. He's not cutting off parts of his body. He's not literally cutting himself and pouring his blood in the wine. And so there there has to be something else going on there uh, in terms of what Christ is doing. But notice then the disputing. This disputing that's going on here is basically in the Old Testament used in in the sense of physical confrontations when you look at the Levitical case law. Uh, They're basically being quarrelsome, fighting against one another. And so in the context of this, as this starts, as we look at this in verse 52 with the Jews disputing among themselves, this is a pretty forceful interaction. So we got to see this as it's not just, you know, a minor disagreement where it's kind of like, well, you have your way and we'll just agree to disagree. I mean, this is almost coming to blows is the presentation here. And Christ doesn't back down. That's where you look at the context of this, go, oh my goodness, like, there is actually a potential physical fight that might break out over the convictions of what's going on here. And Christ then just says, Truly, truly, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I mean, right there, you're you're basically just lighting a match with this kerosene that's all around you and igniting something. And so Christ is not backing down. Why? Because we're looking at just verse 52. If we back up even more in verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And so right here, you're seeing a fundamental point in Israel's history. But this grumbling is that they're not so much upset that Christ is one who is talking about consuming him. Now, verse 52, it seems that from there on, this is where it really um, tends to escalate and, and get more intense. But in verse 41, this language of the Jews grumbling recalls for us the history of Israel, doesn't it? In the wilderness, they grumbled. They end up not having food. They grumbled. They just walked through the Red Sea, and it's one chapter later, walking through the Red Sea, singing the song of Moses, and then all of a sudden they grumble. Grumble against God. Grumble about water. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And so right here, John setting the stage of here you have Christ, the true provision of life, as you had with Israel in the wilderness of the Lord, answering their requests, caring for them, being long-suffering with his own people, and they grumble. And so Christ is not doing this just to create controversy. You know, in our day and age, we have these controversies, we want things to blow up because When you have controversy, you end up in the media and you end up famous. That's not why Christ is doing this. Christ is doing this to say to the Jews, wake up and think about who is standing before you. This is why when his disciples complain about him, Jesus is saying, you really take offense at this? Do you understand who I am? And you're saying these words are offensive. Do you not understand the mission of the Messiah? That's basically what Christ is saying to his disciples once again. That's what he's laying out here. They grumble against him. So in the midst of of this quarrel, and and they're grumbling about Christ, we have to again look at why Christ is here in the midst of this quarrel. What is wrong with him? Well, when Christ gives this speech, as we start in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea. So again, this is important. Back a Roman Catholic up to this point. They find him on the other side of the sea. Rabbi, how'd you come here? In other words, it seems this is very nice, right? They, they want to come. They want to listen to Christ. They're, they're excited about Christ. But Christ turns to them and says, you're, you're not here because you care about me. You're not here because I performed a sign. That's an important point to bring out to, to somebody uh, that, that disagrees with us. What is the sign? When Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, how do they know that, that you sent me? The Lord gives him a series of signs that no ordinary man's going to do. So Christ is saying to them, you're not looking to me as a prophet. You're not looking to me as a Messiah or questioning, maybe I am the Messiah. You're not asking that question. You're, saying, you're thinking, I had a great meal yesterday and I want another one. And so Christ is saying you're being short-sighted. You're not seeing the bigger picture. This is why it goes on. Don't work for the food of this age. That perishes. It goes away. You get hungry again. It doesn't satisfy you. It's not fulfilling. So Christ is saying in verse 27, see the bigger picture. So Christ is the one who does what? Verse 32. He's the one that's drawing a contrast between Moses and himself. Now, this is pretty risky, isn't it? Because the Jews are going to have a very high view of Moses, and and they should. He's a prophet sent by God. And so Christ is not undermining Moses' ministry. It's important to understand that. He's not undermining Moses' ministry. He's saying, listen to how you you put Moses on this pedestal. And what does Moses provide from the Father? He provides a bread that's spoils. A bread that didn't endure. A bread that came down from heaven and reminded you of of a temporariness of this arrangement. Like what we heard this morning. That's part of what you find in a mosaic arrangement. It's temporary. It, It doesn't last. It doesn't endure. And Christ is saying that's how the Father got you through the wilderness. Through this temporal life and this manna that came down from heaven. Christ is saying, I'm telling you right now, what Moses spoke of, I'm the realization of it. So here, Christ is doing a veiled messianic claim. You partake of Christ, you have Christ, you have life. Uh, You're one that has the true bread, you're never going to hunger again, and you have a life that will never end. So notice when, when Christ says this, How how quickly this catches on. Oh, give us this bread always. In other words, they're they're not seeing Christ as the substance of the promise. They're still seeing Christ as the one who performs this miraculous provision of giving them bread. And so they're saying, oh, stay with us and keep giving us this bread. So now you're, you're starting to understand why Christ is getting more and more forceful and trying to force this crowd to understand who he is. As he goes around the synagogues, preaches this message, wants them to understand it's not about manna, it's not about Moses, it's not about bread that provides temporary life. Christ is saying, look to the substance of the promise. I give eternal, everlasting life. Going on then, in terms of how Jesus answers them. So verse 34, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Christ now lays out that he is the one who is a bread of life. The one who comes to him is one that's never going to hunger and thirst. Now, he's adding something that's important. This echoes John 3. We see this throughout the gospel of John, that whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, shall, shall never want something more. So now we're we're starting to understand what Christ is speaking of in terms of consuming him. Consuming him is being identified in Christ. How are we identified in Christ? We're identified in Christ by taking hold of Christ by faith. And so, going on then, verse 40. the says, Well, the Father, whoever looks in the Son, believes in him, should have eternal life. Now notice how eternal this life is. So you had. The contrast of Moses it's temporary it was provisional it wasn't the true bread from heaven Christ is a true bread from heaven this is a the one who brings and establishes and confirms eternal life and the, the life is so eternal that it goes even beyond death this is the assurance that Christ is the one who truly brings about this resurrection event And so it's important to understand as we're walking through this that this isn't just about the Lord's Supper. I mean, the Lord's Supper certainly is is part of this and and communicating this. But we've got to see the deeper substance behind this. And so when, when you look at this and you start understanding this promise of Christ, the Jews going on to grumble, Christ giving these strong words, that if, if we took these words and reduced this down to only the Lord's Supper, we, we would have a problem, wouldn't we? Because anyone who made a deathbed confession and never had the Lord's Supper could not have eternal life. If we took this literally in saying that it's only the Lord's Supper. Now, a Roman Catholic, uh, a lot of times, uh, depending who they are, can be very consistent with that view and say, yeah, absolutely true. This is why we baptize the dead. This is why we we make sure that they partake of the sacraments. But in terms of of truly understanding this, you say, but is that really what Christ is saying, that, that this supper has some magical thing? That certainly the Lord nourishes us through it, but is it so magical that the moment you drink of the wine, the moment you eat of the bread, it means that immediately you're one who is grafted into Christ? Or is this a call and a reminder and a nourishment of the faith that we already possess. That's a reminder and the realization of this, that as we take hold of Christ by faith and as we partake of the supper, we are nourished by this one Christ. Now, another reaction to this is to be dismissive and to just say, well, you know, this is Christ comparing himself to Moses and manna, we don't really want to see anything in the Lord's Supper in this, and we just want to see the emphasis of Christ saying it's a mere memorial. We just remember who Christ is, and it becomes a, a sentimental nourishment, if you will, that, that we just contemplate the gospel. But I think then we miss the substance also of what Christ is communicating. Israel really did consume the manna. And, and the point of that manna is to look to the provision from God, is to look to the greater life, the greater sustenance. So when Israel gathers a manna, there is a, a calling there for them to think about the greater reality. As Christ compares himself to this manna, he's saying, I'm not the one who fades away. I'm not the one who dies and spoils like manna. Remember if they didn't if they gathered extra, it would spoil and it would be rotten the next day, unless it was the Sabbath, and they were allowed they were to gather extra prior to the Sabbath as part of their preparation. And that would miraculously not spoil. But Christ is saying, "Here I am the one that does not spoil." And so what, what is the fundamental solution? How do we know that this is truly right? Well, the exhortation, as we've gone through this, is to understand we take hold of Christ by faith. That the Lord is the one who wants us to understand this. That as we are those who feed on Christ, partake of Christ, have life, are the ones who truly take hold of Christ by faith. We're engrafted into him, we're joined to him, we're part of who he is. That's what he's driving home in verses 52 through 59. He wants them to think about the true life. And so it's, it's what the Belgic Confession, Article 35, what the Catechism is teaching us. As bread nourishes the body, so we know that Christ nourishes our soul. He feeds us. That's all Christ is getting at in verses 52 through 59. But we also find this assurance, the, the realization that as we abide in Christ, he's the one who abides in us. We have the assurance that as we take hold of Christ, whoever feeds, whoever abides, whoever has his life, has true life. This is language that he uses uh, throughout the, the gospel with the assurance that as we are in Christ, we have life. John 14, 20. Uh, the assurance that as we are in Christ, as we take hold of him by faith, we have life. Uh, John 15, verse 4. The assurance of that we're grafted in, abiding in Christ. What does Christ pray in John 17 at the end of the gospel? He requests that we are those who would truly, literally abide, be brought into the Trinitarian God that we would share in these blessings. And so the solution to what's going on here is understanding the context. So if a Roman Catholic comes to you and says, this is literally what Christ says, you say, okay, yeah, that is literally what Christ says. And what does Christ literally mean by that? What Christ literally means is that as we come to Christ, we take hold of him by faith, we are those who will be raised up in the last day. As we are engrafted into Christ, as we find in the gospel, you look at in Christ, you look at abiding in Christ, you look at whoever comes of Christ, and you start searching for these things. The assurance is that as we take hold of Christ by faith, we have life. And then they say, well, why do we have the Lord's Supper then? Well, the Lord's Supper is communicating to us the reality that as we eat bread, as this is identified as the body of Christ, as we partake of the one-time sacrifice of Christ being identified in this, we are those who are truly nourished and built up in Christ. We are joined to him. He is joined to us. As we partake of his blood or the wine. Remember we talked about in Leviticus that It's forbidden to drink of the blood of the sacrifice. As we're invited to drink of the blood, what do we find in Moses? You don't drink of the blood because it's the life of the animal. We're partaking literally of the life of Christ. This is why Christ says in verse 53, the emphasis of drinking his blood, we're having that life, that eternal life that goes beyond this very age. And so when Christ uses this strong language, he's reminding us that as we take hold of Christ by faith, we have life. And he's using this language to draw a a reminder of what we had with Moses. The exodus was provisional. It wasn't eternal. Walking through the wilderness was an example. It was a model. It wasn't eternal. Going into Canaan was merely a model. It wasn't eternal. It modeled heaven. And so the man is spoiled. Israel lost the land. The sacrificial system was provisional and did not take away sin. Christ is saying, as you had that provisional life and the Father got you through the wilderness with stuff that spoiled from heaven, partake of the true life. Have Christ. He is the one who does not spoil. The one whose life is so sure that you will be raised up on the last day. Then we say, well, then what about consuming the Lord? Well, I mean, Christ uses this language. I mean, it's not something we can necessarily back off from or necessarily be uncomfortable with. But we have to understand it and its sacramental intention. And the intention is that as we eat of the bread, it stands for the body of Christ. We're identified in that violent death, in that sacrifice that he did one time. As we drink of the blood, we're drinking of the life of Christ, identified again in that one-time sacrifice of Christ. And so it's simply what our confessions teach us. As these elements feed our mouths and provide physical nourishment, so the spirit feeds the mouth of our souls. Let us then... Not shy away from this language or be overly concerned about this language. But let us understand the intention of this language to communicate that life is only found in Christ. This is what is communicated to us in the Lord's Supper. Not in our sacrifices, not in anything we add. Life is only found in Christ. We are those then who share in this feast, partaking of that communion fellowship with our Lord and Savior as his redeemed. Let us then understand that one-time sacrifice of Christ is what nourishes, makes us worthy, and is represented in the Lord's Supper. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archived sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through Most Common Podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.